Welcome to International Tax Bites, a series of conversations around issues and concepts in international taxation. I'm Graham Jackson, and I'm a Gibraltar and English solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. Today, I will be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who is a Jersey advocate and English barrister with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. In this episode, we will be talking about how important the concept of source of income or gains is to international taxation, and how to identify the source of income and how technology is impacting on international tax in general. This is, of course, just a conversation and no substitute for proper advice in the relevant jurisdictions. So, Harriet, here we are. It's episode six of International Tax Bites, and this is the end of the first series, which the aim of the first series, wasn't it, was to cover the big concepts of double taxation treaties and international taxation. So for that reason, today we're going to talk about source of income or gains. Uh, That is, where do the income or gains of an entity or an individual arise? Or accrue. Or accrue. That's that's very true. Yeah, arise or accrue. Um, So could you just run us through why this is an important concept? If we've already talked about residence, how does it interact with residence? So source is a very important concept. And um, anyone who's listened to almost any of the previous episodes will be delighted to hear me say, this is another, it's quite a wishy-washy concept yet again. It's not straightforward with clear limits, very much like everything else we've talked about. Um, But it is, again, a very important topic. And primarily because like residents, it's one of the ways that uh, states use to set the territorial limits of taxation. So to take uh, the UK as an example, UK income tax is usually charged on the worldwide income of residents or income which has its source in the UK but which arises to a non-resident. So that gives a really clear example of the distinction between the two. They're used in the same way. They used to say we have the right to tax you in our country uh, but one says we have the right to tax everything you earn wherever it arises, so whatever its source is and that's residents and source, we say, well, that arises in our country, therefore we're going to tax that, irrespective of where you actually are resident. So So that's how the two effect. It's almost an expression of sovereignty, right? Yes, almost. These are the boundaries of my powers. If you make it in my country, you pay tax on it. And if you live in my country, I will tax you on everything. Pretty much, yes. And that, that's, that's, that's pretty much the position in the UK and in a lot of other countries, I believe, yeah. as well. So, so that's very important then as the second strand after residence of how you work out if income or gains are taxable in a jurisdiction. That's so, it, exactly. Exactly. So um, we're talking about source and the lawyers amongst our audience will um i've often heard the word citus and source used interchangeably or seemingly interchangeably um in case law and certainly in conversation um uh, by tax lawyers could you just explain to us if there is a difference between the concept of citus and the concept of source 
This is a really good point to make because situs and source are two things that look very similar but do different things and are two separate sets of rules. So generally a thing will have a situs and the most obvious example is a house, a piece of land that has a situs where it physically is. Other types of physical property generally tend to have a situs where they are. Gets more difficult with intangible property. Source is something separate. And we see this from some of the English case law. And I'm thinking particularly of two um, English cases, Perrin and Ardmore. And of course, Ardmore had a Gibraltar angle because the two countries which they were trying to decide the source between for the source of the income were Gibraltar and the UK. And so in those cases, it's quite clearly stated that everyone agreed, the parties, the judges, including the Court of Appeal judges in Ardmore, all agreed that the source, sorry, the, the rules as to situs were not a relevant or certainly not a determinative um, factor in determining source. So they are different. Unfortunately, because there was agreement, there isn't a lot of analysis, but they are definitely different. And the, the key difference is situs determines where a thing, a physical thing or an intangible thing is. And from that perspective, we'd be far more likely to see it used in the context of gift taxes. And one of the things that you see in the old style capital taxes treaties like the UK India treaty, which we mentioned earlier, is they might actually have a situs code. So it's almost like a situs tiebreaker. So if the two jurisdictions both think something is situate in them by their own domestic law, the treaty decides it. So CITES deals with things. Source deals with where income arises or capital gains accrue. And again, it's a bit, it's a bit more obscure than CITES because it's very easy to see how CITES works with physical property. And you can sort of extrapolate from there to the more difficult things like debts and shares. Source is assigning a geographical location to something that isn't geographical. And it does have a completely separate set of rules to CITES. Right, okay, so that's really interesting. And, and so, but what we're talking about here is source. We're not talking about situs. Situs may be influential in determining the source uh, or one of the factors which goes to where the source is, but it is not all there is. There are many other things. Uh, that's right. And indeed, I think it was in Ardmore or, possi or possibly in Perrin, but one or the other, the judge said, really, we're not that interested in situs in the case of, say, a debt, because it sort of is the same factor as residents of the debtor. So right. it may or may not come into the consideration of source, but it's definitely a different set of rules. And the CITES rules are quite legalistic. Okay, and we're going to talk about Ardmore later um, and that Lucky us. very famous multifactorial test that, uh, that, that works how it works. So I think we've already touched on it, haven't we then? So the next question really is, is, is this, is the rule the same for all different types of income? Because we have lots of different types of income. We have trade, we have interest, we have other kinds of passive income like rent and royalties and um, capital gains and things like that, which um, which arise in, in, in jurisdictions. But I'm guessing then that there are different sets of rules for each one and a different set of case law around each one. Before we go any further, we must apologize for being very English-centric in the case law around this. We're both English um, common law solicitors, uh, so a solicitor and a barrister. So um, we are going to talk around that, but these rules are not 
whilst they're specific to the UK and England, they're also themes that run through the, the rest of the world. Exactly. And just on that point, the UN has actually said international income taxation revolves around two main concepts, the concept of source and the concept of residence. Under their domestic tax laws, countries will assert the right to tax income arising or sourced in their jurisdiction, and most countries will seek to tax residents on their income wherever arising. So the UN recognises that, in fact, while the rules in their specifics might differ, they're likely to be fairly similar. And interestingly, another way in which the source, the source of income is important is some double tax agreements will actually have sort of internal rules about source. I've got two, and again, I'm sorry, they do involve the UK. Two UK examples, the UK and the Netherlands Treaty um, in Article 22.3 and the UK-US DTA in Article 24.5. And that second one explains that um, profits, income and chargeable gains for the purposes of paragraph four of Article 24.4 owned by a resident in the, of the UK, which may be taxed in the US in accordance with this convention, shall be deemed to arise from sources within the United States. So it actually has an override of the source rules right there. Um, but, but yes, most countries have source rules and they are probably based on similar themes, it's fair to say. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's good to know that the international taxation system does try and at least dovetail um, a little bit. It's, uh, it, it must be, you know, we, we, we work in this industry and, um, it must be a nightmare for international tax administrators to try and coordinate 190 whatever it is jurisdictions that are all doing their own thing. Um, and the OECD uh, do try, don't they? So let's just go through the basics then of what the rules are for various different types of income. And I think the first that we could deal with is probably the one that most people think of when they think of income, and that's um, from trade. Was this, where do, how do we identify the source of trade income? So th there, there is a number of ways that we would, um, we, we would look at that. For unilateral relief in the UK, it's the source of that such income, and that includes income uh, for personal or professional services, which is sort of old-fashioned treaty language, really, isn't it? Um, is deemed to be income arising in the territory where the uh, where the services are performed. And again, if you look at the OECD model, you get to see a bit of the idea of how source works from the permanent establishment rules for businesses. Yes. So if, if we remember what the permanent establishment rules say, then or the basics of permanent establishment is you are taxed in your country of residence unless you have a permanent establishment in the the other territory of the treaty. Um, and then we have the ways that you identify whether you have a permanent establishment. We talked about some length last time, didn't we, about offices and um, mines. Time before Big last, sites. but otherwise, otherwise completely correct. Um, and um, yeah, so that's the, they're basically trying to identify the minimum source, aren't they there? Yes, yeah. It's not referred to as source, and actually the word source doesn't come up in the OECD treaty overly much or possibly at all, though it does come up in, in treaties based on it. But yes, there's a lot of the source concept in there if you look for it. Yeah. Um, okay, so but obviously with, with um, a, a jurisdiction like Gibraltar, um, where we have a very 
source heavy taxation system and then we think about this a lot and and there are other jurisdictions around the world that do so hong kong being the the biggest that i can think of that is that it has a, a has a purely source based um taxation system for companies and 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 a lot of litigation through the years about it so, so um, through some of those decisions graham so the the first one, the big, the big landmark case is a case called Hang Seng, which is, which um, sets us up for the, for the sets us up for the for the analysis of, of what source is, and in that case, um, the judge talks about how when you're trying to work out where the the, the phrase would be accrued and derived um, in in Hong Kong legislation, but it's pretty much interchangeable with with um with source when you're looking for the source you look for the location where the taxpayer did the thing that earned the money so we look to find what the taxpayer did to earn the money essentially and the location of that now the case all points to the fact that a company or, or, or a business does many things which contribute to income being generated but are not in themselves income generating. So let's think about our, our example that we've used on several occasions, I think, the digging of a hole, right? So we have a man digging a hole in Hong Kong and we are paid to dig holes. So the digging of the hole is the activity which generates the income. The sending of the man to Hong Kong to dig the hole is not the digging of the hole. So therefore, it is not the income generating activity. The sales agreement where the salesman negotiates with the man who needs holes digging is not itself the digging of the hole. And therefore, they're what are called antecedent activities, which contribute to the existence of hole digging for want of a better word, but are not actually hole digging. So you could be, the, the big thing that people fall, the trap that people fall into is they say, they, they sort of confuse residents and source because they start saying, oh, the board met here. And if the board hadn't decided to dig a hole, the hole would never have been dug. And the board met in Italy. So that means that the income is Italian sourced. And the case actually deals with this issue in ING Bearing, a later case. The judge, I think his name was Ribeiro, um, and he actively rejects what he calls the brain analogy of that without the brain deciding the arms could not do almost that's what he's driving at that that's not a valid assessment otherwise it conflates source and residence entirely it, exactly and can i just add that this is the first time i've regretted that we decided to go without video graham because i think everyone would have loved to have seen you doing the brain and arm waving analogy in earth the hole digging i did mine hole digging i must have <laughs> Yes, so I, I think this, how you can draw an analogy with one of my favourite legal concepts, which is, and I, I, I did say I'm a barrister who doesn't like Latin, but I am going to use a little bit now, 
which is the distinction between a causa causans and a causa sine qua non. Uh, so there are things without which it, which a certain thing would not occur, but then there is the thing that really is the root cause of it occurring. And I think you can see the same distinction here between uh, with the rejection of the brain analogy. Yes, of course, the directors had to decide to accept the hole digging contract, but they didn't dig the hole. Exactly. Now it becomes, it starts to break down a little. Well, it doesn't break down. It starts to become blurry um, conceptually when people are imagining it, when there is no actual activity. So, well, no, no, no activity is not the right word, but where there is a, where there is almost an intangible activity, like a machine does something, yeah? So, because there's no humans doing anything, they start to sort of like the, 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 the advisors start to reach for where are the people doing things, and then they end up coming back to the board because the board have made a decision to press a button that drives a wheel, that pushes a rod, that makes something else happen in another country. Um, they, they, they're reaching almost for it and trying to drag things back into places where there are some human beings. And advisors really need to resist that urge and they need to um, almost accept that it's possible that there may be no single geographic source. How does that, how does that fit with you, Harriet? Well, I'm not sure how it fits with me. I can imagine a few revenue authorities who might not be too keen on that, because, of course, when we get to that position, um, it makes it very difficult to apply territorial limits to taxation, and it makes it very difficult to say, this is my part of the pot and that is your part of the pot. And of course, with a lot of these concepts in international law, that is, or in international taxation, that is where they do, as you say, not quite break down, but that is where they get difficult. And again, to draw an analogy, which I seem to be enjoying doing today, you look at, say, the residence tiebreaker in the OECD model, which we talked about earlier in this series, and you see there that ultimately they accept that all of the tests might not work they yeah. might not be able to make the decision. And so they say, well, then you have to fight it out between you, mutual agreement. Exactly. Uh, between the two states. And so there, isn't, there isn't an equivalent of that for source. And I think in practice, it's probable that courts will mostly, I, I've, not, I've not come across a decision where it's explicitly said there will always be a single source. And if you've got two that are really similar, you just sort of have to, two, you know, two really good candidates, you've just got to decide. Um, but even if, even if that has not anywhere been specifically said, I suspect judges will always come down on one side or the other because otherwise the whole system starts to break down. I, I, I agree with you. And I think that as we, as, as we move to more digitization, I think this is one of the problems that's driving the OECD, um, digitization of the economy um, exercise. Um, as we get see more of that, I think it's going to be... Um, there could very well be a conceptual shift in the design of the international taxation system as a result of the fact that um, source might break down as a, an identifier. Yes, I think I think certainly digitization of the economy is causing a lot of not, not a lot of issues per se, but it's raising issues that weren't raised before and, and source is a really good example of it, but in a number of other areas as well, where you think actually this is now much more difficult. And in fact, again, to give an example, 
um, and this is a very old example, this is more to do with international travel, but the treaty that the UK had with Jersey until 2018 um, didn't allow for relief of individuals who were dual resident. And of course, if you think back to when it was made in the early 1950s, probably very few people actually were dual resident because travel was much more difficult, even between two such two, two places in such close proximity. And so that wasn't really a major issue. And then you see that only a few years after that, dual resident treaties became the standard. And so I think we're possibly looking at something similar here, though, of course, the OECD will coordinate <laughs> developments yeah. better, I suspect, than the less cohesive approach back then. So um, just, to, just to say, though, uh, for those that are interested, the, uh, the Hong Kong Inland Revenue Department have had a good go in their um, Departmental Interpretation and Practice Note number 39 revised um, at working out source for a digital economy in e-commerce uh, and rules around uh, accrued and derived, which would flow from Hang Seng, the case that we were talking about before, because they work very um, firmly within that framework. So if, if anybody's really interested, they could they could flick through that. It's available on the internet or good bookstores. Um, so, so source of trade is about finding the actual income generating activity and pointing to where that is. I think, and, and all the fluff that goes around in the admin, the back office, whatever, that isn't actually income generating, though it, it will maybe go to economic substance in, in some cases. Um, but is that the, is that, how does that work with things like rent? Um, interest where no actual activity is being done. No man is digging a hole when you rent a property out. So how does that work? So we have we have different rules effectively. Uh, rent or any sort of income derived from real property tends to be very straightforward in in its approach to source. I.e., it's where the physical prop the source is where the physical property is situated. So. Mm. If you own a property in the UK that you rent out, you pay tax on that in the UK. You might pay tax on it elsewhere as well if you're not resident in the UK, but yes, we, but yes, you will certainly pay tax on it in the UK. So that one's quite straightforward. Other types of passive income, as I think we're calling them, are a bit more difficult. And interest is a particularly interesting one. Um, it's been the source of a lot of different uh, decisions, certainly in the UK. And it's also one, it, I think we mentioned earlier, Ardmore and Perrin. It's one where people have brought up CITES. And I think it's clear to see why that happens, because a debt isn't a physical thing. And interest, or the right to interest, isn't a physical thing. So you've got two non-physical things that are linked. And so I think it does make some sense that people have looked at that and said, well, shouldn't the test, if the debt's situate somewhere, shouldn't the source be the same place? But it's not necessarily. Right, okay. So shall we go all the way back to National Bank of Greece? Off you go, Graham. <laughs> so it's Hailsham, isn't it? Uh, if I remember correctly. I think you're right, yes. He had a heavy lunch. Um, so as I remember it there was some bonds and the the question was did the interest income arise in the UK for I think it was for the purposes of I think it was then called Schedule D 
Um, and Hailsham gave a really rather complex multifactorial test um, in which he listed the things which may be which may be relevant to the source of interest income. So as we as we have discussed previously, possibly just between the two of us, National Bank of Greece is an admirably brief judgment uh, from the 70s. And so the factors there are broadly, though not clearly stated to be uh, the residence of the debtor, the residence of any guarantor, the location of any security and what's referred to as the ultimate or substantive source of discharge of the debtor's obligations. So we would be looking at there where the money to pay is actually coming from. Right. Okay. So what he's what Hailsham's saying there is, I think, is that there are many factors can influence this. And if I remember correctly, he doesn't give us a hierarchy of factors. He just says these are factors which may be influential. And <clears throat> The revenue have always tried to push, haven't they, for the residents of the debtor being the primary factor. And I think, again, that's where the confusion between source and situs comes from, because residents of the debtor is important for situs, but it's just one of multi-factors for source. Right, okay, so... And, and, and there isn't really any primacy. The, the, the possible primacy, I think, if one had to look at it, though not necessarily from National Greece, which as I say, is a very brief decision, is possibly the um, ultimate or substantive uh, discharge of the debt. Right. The location of that. So there has been several, there's been, it's been litigated several times since then, hasn't there? It, it has, which isn't surprising given the lack of guidance on how to apply the test in um, Lord Hailsham's judgment. This brings us back to Ardmore and Perrin, which I think are the, the most recent extensive explorations of this issue? Uh, there have been a couple of cases in the uh, English courts since then, but yes, uh, Ardmore is the most recent Court of Appeal decision. So in Ardmore, I think in Ardmore, the, 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 the basis of the finding was one factor may be more important than the others, but it is still a multifactorial test and it's essentially a case-by-case -case analysis. Yes, uh, and the question you need to ask is whether a practical person would regard the source as in the UK or elsewhere. And so the, the practical person would answer that question by reference to those factors that we've already mentioned. But that's what you're trying to get at. And I think for the, for the court in Ardmore, that, that was sort of the essence of what source is. So we're back to something that we've said several times before, that the things that we have said in all of our um, podcasts are always take proper advice. It's a woolly concept and it's a case by case analysis. And we, we're sorry we can't give you a hard and fast rule. Pretty much, yes. That's pretty much where we are with source, certainly for interest anyway. Source for interest, it's, but, but I think that, you know, I think everybody is starting to admit, aren't they, that um, residents of the debtor is, a, is at least one of the most important factors um, and it would go it would take quite a lot to swing it away from residents of debtor practically in, in all the cases I have seen I have never seen anybody find in that the, the residence of the guarantor is the overriding factor 
No, and I, I think that it would be a very unusual case where, where one did, because the guarantor is a far less important figure, I would say, than, than the debtor. The guarantor is sort of your backstop rather than the person who's primarily involved. So, But we could imagine a situation where it was engineered that the guarantor was actually always intended to be the debtor. So in, in, a, in a commercial situation, they could, they could, what I'm saying is they're leaving themselves sufficient room to take into account any commercial events that might override the, the debtor being the most important person. Let's say you had a debtor with no substantial amount of money in his bank. The guarantor was always going to be the person that ended up as the That might do it. If, if realistically the guarantor was only going to end up paying the debt possibly like my dad when he guaranteed my first mortgage <laughs> nice what a nice man will he guarantee you um so so essentially what we're saying is that the multifactorial test is left open to cover odd events but it's really a smell test does it look and feel like it comes from the uk Unfortunately, yes. Or does it look like, feel like it comes from Gibraltar? So um, that is actually really quite unsatisfactory as a piece of law, isn't it? It doesn't really give any guidance. Look, it's, 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 no, it's no surprise that we're still seeing cases on this concept. Um, so, it, you know, it, it really isn't surprising that, that it's still rolling on and people are still trying to get greater clarification. On the plus side, we've been very clear about what the source of income arising from real property is. That's clear. Yes. Unsurprisingly, it's where the property is. <laughs> I think, though, however, the, 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 thing, the, the clarity of the property, I, I thought this when you, when you were talking about it, the clarity of the property issue goes some way to explaining why the antecedent activities are not relevant for the trade. You would never imagine, would you, that your rental property suddenly became taxable where your board was because a board decision happened in a country different from where the property was. No, of course not. So why would you imagine that the board influenced where the trade happened? I quite like that as an analogy. Yes, I think that, I think that works quite nicely. Um, so I think that's... There, there, we've shed some light. We've added a little bit to the, uh, to the literature. There you go. So... In other words, we've identified, haven't we, while we've been talking that source is very important, that it is not always entirely clear, though in most cases it will be. One would hope so, yes. And when we're dealing cross-border, it's things like, it's intangible things like interest and loans that are the problem. As always, really, they do tend to be the issue. The, issue, the issues always seem to crop up with intangibles. Yeah. And I think that we, we both agree, don't we, that there's going to be more work around this issue with digital economy and, and as things become more dispersed. I mean, even the changes with cloud computing coming in, you used to be able to point to a server, to a machine in a, in a warehouse somewhere and say, that's where the program is running. But now as cloud computing de um, decentralizes everything, it's going to become more difficult, I think, um, and, and, and there will need to be changes in the international taxation system to, to resolve that point. 
I think that's right. And I think it, it applies equally to source. And actually, some of these are equal problems for permanent establishment, which if we go right back to the start of what we said, where I see you said you see aspects of the source doctrine in the permanent establishment rules, you can see why the two would face similar problems potentially. Yeah. OK, so that's really interesting. Harry. I've really enjoyed this one. Um, hopefully that people won't be able to hear the edits too much. <laughs> cut things out that we locked up um, <laughs> <laughs> so um this is the la end of the last episode of the first series and yes I've, I've had great fun and i hope the people who've listened to whom we are incredibly grateful for listening have enjoyed them too yeah we are, we are very grateful to you for listening and and you know we we never thought that we'd reach out to 28 29 different countries from ghana to Italy, Italy appeared on our listener list today, um, Latvia and uh, Singapore and Hong Kong. It's, it, it, it's amazing that, that we've managed to explain things to people all around the world. I, I, I'm completely bemused by the whole affair, to be honest, but there you go. So thank you very much for listening. And Harriet, thank you so much for your time over the past few weeks. It's been fantastic i've really enjoyed myself and you know what i think we should come back for another series i think we should have a think about what we're going to cover and then and we should anybody, sorry if anybody has any any ideas that they would like to see covered you can drop us a line on our um on our international tax bites page on linkedin or our international tax bites at gmail.com email exactly. address so yeah, if there's anything you'd like to see discussed do do let us know because i'd be delighted to do a second series yeah it's it's been a it's been a really good thing so anyway don't forget this is just a conversation it is not a substitute for competent advice in the relevant jurisdictions exactly thank you very much